0: Following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, I'm going to revisit something that Scott talked about last week. In fact, I'm actually going to re-preach his message. I'm not. um, That was a lot funnier in my own head than it was when I said that out loud. Uh, Scott went through a verse or two that gave a list of about six things that characterize false teachers, and the first one was. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts, and I had actually been doing some research on this um, before we pivoted, and Scott ended up doing the message and things like that, so I was looking back through my notes, and I kind of started going down this rabbit hole of what love feasts were like and what feasting was like in the Greco-Roman Empire at the time this was written, and there's some interesting things that come out of this, so I'm just just going to say straight up, and if you saw a little thing on Facebook, you're going to learn a lot more about feasts today than you've ever wanted to know. In fact, you might even leave here thinking, I still didn't want to know that much, but it's going to be stuck in your head. But I think we need this context to understand what was happening in the early church when the early church did love feasts because... People were coming into the church and they were coming from a climate from a culture that feasted in a particular way and now they're coming into the church and now these feasts are going to have to be something else and so you see multiple passages actually in the new testament where the writers are going you guys got to figure out these feasts you got to figure these things out and jude just makes one little comment that these false teachers are hidden reefs in a love feast like the the ship of the church is sailing and it's hitting these things. You don't see it, but there's something undermining. It's going to sink the ship if we're not careful. And so I'm going off of that. We're going to end up in 1 Corinthians talking about what Paul said about that. And then what are the implications for us today? Because we do live in a different time, and feasting is a different kind of thing. But there's, uh, there's ideas and principles from this that I think are worthwhile for us to ponder. So here we go. If you live in first century Rome, and if you have money, you know how to feast. Uh, Oh, one more note. I have tons of footnotes for today because there is so much fascinating information about this that we just don't have time to talk about. It's posted online if you'd like to follow up and read more, not just with how the Greeks and Romans feasted, but with how the early church did. There's stuff online. All right. You know how to feast if you're rich. Popular but costly fare included pheasant, thrush, or other songbirds, raw oysters, lobster, shellfish, venison, wild boar, and peacock. Elaborate recipes were invented with expensive ingredients and elaborate, even dramatic presentations. For example, there was a fictional story written between 54 and 68 AD, and this fictional story wasn't, don't think of it as they made stuff up. Within the context of the story, they're talking about what feasts were like. One man serves his guests pig stuffed with sausages, a hare decorated with wings to resemble Pegasus, and various foods arranged in the shape of the 12 signs of the zodiac. If you had tableware, you were wealthy, it was silver, it was gold, it was semi-precious stones like a crystal or agate. The best cups would have been engraved on the side with a picture of Dionysus, who was the god of revelry. In fact, one of the articles that I was reading described these feasts as a calculated display of debauchery and power. So this was just a time where people wallowed in their wealth. This was primarily reserved for men, though women of high social standing would occasionally join them. And if you were poor, you did not have access to this kind of life. Uh, As one article notes, outside the mansions and the saffron-flavored swimming pools... The plebeians, or the common people, lived in overcrowded tenements and ate frugally. Food inequality was as endemic to ancient Rome as it is in our world today, with hunger and hedonism coexisting throughout the empire. With a population of one million people, the city was hard to feed. We know of 19 food riots in ancient Rome, and there were surely other ones that haven't left a documentary record. During one such riot in the Forum in AD 51, was caused by a prolonged drought, and the emperor Claudius had to flee for his life. So there was a lot of tension culturally over this issue of food. And the poor, it appears, ate mostly a grain diet, mostly something called millet, but it was a food that the rich would mockingly call animal food. They just expected that the poor would eat the kind of food that rich people gave to their livestock. In fact, the ancient Roman playwright Plautus, noted a common lament in the ancient world when he wrote that a wretched is the man who has to look for his food himself and has a hard time finding it but more wretched is the one who has a hard time looking for it and does not find anything and most wretched is the one who does not have anything to eat when he wishes to slaves as you might expect had the worst end of the deal they were fed by their masters sometimes with a little more consideration than, than that afforded to livestock Some ruthlessly efficient masters even admonished owners to cut food rations for sick slaves and provided instructions on how to feed them according to the amount of work they were expected to do, depending on the season, similar to how they treated draft animals. Now, we're going to read more about feasts as this unfolds, but I think you get the picture for where we're going. The, the rich feasted with just incredible kind of revelry and, and sumptuous food, and I think debauchery is a good term for it. And on the far end of the spectrum, the very poor were desperate for food and often seemed to have had a diet that wasn't much better than the animals that they tended. So now the church enters. And what the church has done for 2,000 years is go into cultural norms and subvert them and turn them and transform them. As individuals are filled with the message of the gospel, it can't help but leak out into all the institutions that they're found in. And the church began to fill up with slaves and women and orphans and the poor. Uh, So if you think of it this way, that the early church appealed to people in that society that were on the margins often very desperate, people that were looked down on by the cultural elites of that time. The church fills up with them because there was something about this new body of Christ of saved and transformed people that was really appealing. And they began to have their own love feasts. So they called them now love feast, not just feast. And the word for love is agape. We've talked about this a lot over the years. It comes from a form of that, that this feast was something where there was going to be self-sacrifice rather than self-indulgence. One commentary notes that this probably denotes a communal celebration in the church. It's the observance of the Lord's Supper, or a fellowship meal that may have preceded or followed observance of the Lord's Supper. And most of the historians I read said it was likely both. You would either get together and eat a meal and then observe what we call communion, or you would have communion and then have this meal. And this was done on probably a weekly basis, and it might have been done even more frequently than that. But everybody gets together, they share this common meal. Uh, And the wealthy in the church would end up throwing the feast because they had the ability to do it. And everyone, even the poor, would get to celebrate. So the idea was that the more affluent members in the church were bringing the abundance of what they had and they were sharing it with those who were less fortunate. And as opposed to the Roman culture where there was this hierarchy of who could participate and you could tell where your social standing was, Everybody participated. You all sat at a common table. You shared a common meal because in the kingdom of God, image bearers deserve honor, and the early church is meant to show this. So this was the opposite of a calculated display of debauchery and power. This was a display of love, a display of service, and a display of honor. So it wasn't just that they were gathering in a common place, like a common home or a common building. They were having a common experience, Look at how the church is described in Acts chapter 2. I'm beginning here in verse 44. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I suspect that's talking about this combination of observing communion, the Lord's Supper, and sharing a meal together. They broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. Yeah, that'll, that'll grant you favor. People will look well on you. Maybe not uh, some people of culture who are worried about this subversive church coming in and honoring everybody, but certainly for the people who are beginning to flock into the church, yeah, that's a compelling vision of community. It's a great picture of, well, when we say community, just think common unity. We're being unified around even the most common things. So we can see the church has been learning this idea of common unity, community, throughout the Old Testament in a lot of ways. Uh, Think of the passage where it talks about, for, for the ladies at that time, when you come to church, everybody wears a veil. Why? Because a veil was a symbol of honor. And we're not going to divide you with these symbols of honor and dishonor like culture uses. You're all image bearers of God. So you're all going to participate in the symbol that brings you honor in that same church. There appears to have been division between the men because the Jewish men were wearing their their prayer caps and were really proud of this, and the Gentiles weren't, and it was causing division. So they're like, okay, nobody wears caps. Like, we're not going to separate over this kind of thing. This is silly. We're going to do the expression that unites us instead of divides us. So you're seeing constantly throughout the New Testament that the writers are leveling the playing field. People are coming in who have been influenced by cultural ideas that are causing division, and they're like giving a social stratification, and the writers in the early church are going, no, this isn't going to work on the church. It's not going to work with your clothing, and as we talk about feasts, you can't do this with your food. Here's what was happening. Roman communal feasting not only united and classified participants by social rank... It offered a dramatic confirmation of what we now recognize as a key element for interpreting any eating event, namely that once we establish the time, place, and participants of a meal, nearly everything about social relationships in a given society can be brought into sharper focus, such as the power of food. Now, that might be an overstatement, but in Rome, that was certainly the case. You understood how you were supposed to value people by what the feasting was like. There was a dude named Marshall around that time. He wrote satire, and he described a meal where you could see the division of social um, groupings this way. You take oysters fattened in the Lucrine Lake. I cut my mouth, sucking a muscle from its shell. You get mushrooms. I get swing fungi. I don't know what swing fungi are, but when I looked them up, all I got was articles about how playground equipment is so dirty. So... <laughs> All I know is that uh, mushrooms are great and swing fungi aren't. You take a turbot, I think that's right, it's like a flatfish. I get a brill. You get a golden turtle dove with fattened rump <laughs> that fills you up. I get a magpie dead in its cage. That's what's said before me. So it's satire. This guy's just pointing out when you feasted in Rome, like the division was obvious. And the writers in the New Testament say over and over again, this can't happen in a church love feast. Because the love feast is supposed to be this practical demonstration of unity, of celebration, of common care. It doesn't confirm boundaries. It erases boundaries. Um, You're taking people who are socially different. You're taking people who have nutritionally different uh, lifestyles, and some of them in desperate need of a good meal. You're taking people who are healthy and unhealthy, rich and poor, you name it. Um, you're, you're erasing all these divisions, and rather this being an opportunity that confirms what's the worst about the way the world organizes itself. This is an opportunity for the church to show what's best about the kingdom of God. And so there's this, this self-discipline of the appetites of the flesh. There's a self-sacrificial sense in which someone says, I could just luxuriate in this thing that I have, but I'm going to bring it to the church and I'm going to build up everyone around me. One writer noted in Corinth, this agape feast seems to have been a slightly modified or it seems to have been slightly modified by two Greek customs one of the customs was called the symposium it was a banquet much like our modern picnic where the most generous way was for those best able to bring the most liberal amount and then spread the whole on a common table so picnic or potluck but those who had an abundance of things brought the most stuff if not nearly all of it The second custom was the Grecian sacrificial feast in which an ample supply was furnished and so moderately eaten that a rich remainder was left for the poor. When Paul remained at Corinth the best qualities of both these pagan customs were exhibited in the love feast of the Christians with some Christian improvements. I think that's an understatement, with some Christian improvements, right? It's bringing with it, okay, we can take these things because this is in line with what God's calling us to do in this community, but now we're talking about we are we are passing on the love of Christ, the love that Christ gave to us. This is one practical way in which we do it. Uh, we talked for a while here at church about the acts of kindness and the way you show the practical love of Jesus. Yep, that's exactly what was happening in these feasts. And it's meant to not only build the community, but when people ask the question, why are you so kind? Oh, because Christ was kind to me. I'm passing this on. And it appears that when Paul left Corinth, this just falls apart. And when we get to 1 Corinthians now, and this is going to be from 1 Corinthians 11, Uh, Paul calls them out and he says, listen, now the wealthy are getting drunk, the wealthy are gluttonous, the poor are still eating what they always ate, and this has implications for physical health, for emotional and relational health, and even for spiritual health, because this was supposed to be embodying something about the love of Christ and the kind of kingdom that God is building. So I want to give a little context first on 1 Corinthians 11. I don't know if you get tired of us talking about context, 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 but you have to have it. Okay, let's back up two chapters. Chapter 9. This is where Paul talks about how he limits his freedoms and he exercises self-discipline. Brief excerpt. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. I actually strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So Paul says, okay, I'm coming to you as an apostle. I have all these rights and privileges, but I'm just telling you, I limit them because I'm in service to others. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10, he talks first about unity, and then he talks about building up the body of Christ. So here's an excerpt about unity. He talks about our ancestors were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. We drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, which was Christ. Is not the cup and the bread, participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So, you're already getting a hint. He's thinking about food. He's thinking about there's communion and there's this sharing aspect of it. And then he goes on in the chapter to talk about rights again. I have the right to do anything, you say. Well, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Well, not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So whether you eat or drink, back to eating and drinking. Or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. All right, so that's the two chapters preceding chapter 11. Let's skip chapter 11 for a second. Chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts that must be surrendered and self-disciplined for the construction of the church. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, they're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we actually treat with special honor. God has put the body together, that's the church giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it, and if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's going to be the chapter after chapter 11. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. Chapter 14 just talks about... Don't do spiritual practices that only edify yourself. They should edify everybody, all right? So chapter 11 falls right in the middle of this pattern where Paul is talking about, I have all these things, I have these privileges and rights, but I'm going to live my life in such a way that I order them for the good of those around me. I think he's talking about unity, unity, unity. We are one and we lift up the dishonorable so that they are honored. We, there are no weaker parts in the body of Christ. So, this is all about unity. So, this brings us to chapter 11, which is right in the middle of what I just described. But Paul writes this. Do you remember the food riot I mentioned earlier where Claudius had to flee? This is about that exact same time. Right. So, Paul writes this to the church. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I'm not sure how to read that last sentence, and neither are the commentaries. Either Paul is going, okay, divisions aren't a bad thing because you're actually going to be able to see who's in God's will and who's not. But there's also a very sarcastic reading of that where Paul's practically rolling his eyes. He's like, yeah, good job, guys. You have to have divisions. I get it. Some of you are God loves more. I'm not actually sure which way to read this. One thing I do know is that Paul doesn't like the divisiveness of the church. He says, so when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. They're supposed to be, but it's not, it's not that. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So the meal, the Lord's Supper, or the agape feast is meant to unite them, and it's actually highlighting the divisions. So Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is about remembering and um, uh, uh, I'll just use remembering right now, for lack of a better term, remembering the sacrifice and the love of Christ. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and I think by the context, I think by the context, this means without a heart to sacrificially show the kind of love to others that Christ showed to them. Whoever eats or drinks Uh, the bread or the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I, I think it means they're making a mockery of the legacy of Christ. Everyone ought to examine themselves, their motivation, their hearts, their resources before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ and I think that means without noticing the needs in the community of the church. They eat and drink judgment on themselves. And this is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is another way of saying you have died. It it almost seems like he's saying you're celebrating Christ's body, but you're not seeing Christ's body. Like you're, you're remembering what Christ did with his body, but you're not discerning the implications of that for his body right in front of you. And a lot of ink has been spilled about verse 18, where many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have fallen asleep. And once again, if you pick up my notes, you'll see um, commentary on different ways people have tried to understand that. I'm going to offer what I will call an at minimum reading. People are sick and dying in your church because you aren't honoring the sacrificial nature of Christ's sacrifice, and you're refusing to sacrifice yourself for the benefit and the construction of the body of Christ. That's not to say that there are deeper spiritual conversations to have about it, but I think, in a very practical sense, based on all the chapters, Paul is really talking about community life and the importance of it. Last thing he says in that chapter, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, When we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. And here's his conclusion, which makes me think this passage is supposed to be about community life and the meal. So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. That's the big finish for that whole section. When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. All right. So If I can take a big picture from this that we can broaden out to try to make some implications for ourselves, I'm going to phrase it this way. Even good things can become bad if our use or exercise of them shows that we don't discern the body of Christ by seeing the people around us and stewarding what God has given us in a way that builds up the body of Christ that is assembled in common union. So here's the deal with false teachers. They're not only wolves, they're lone wolves. Even if they run in packs, at the end of the day, they are lone wolves. They're only interested in themselves. They see themselves as islands. They don't have respect for others. It's almost as if they interpreted freedom in Christ as freedom from any obligations outside of themselves, when actually I think Christ frees us to see our obligations in light of the kingdom and then joyfully fulfill them for our good and for God's glory. So I've been thinking about this for myself. How does discerning the body of Christ shape how I view life together in the church? So if I'm understanding what Paul is talking about and what Jude is warning against is this danger of this kind of creeping into the church, I thought Scott did a nice job making clear that when Jude talks, the danger wasn't some overwhelming force outside the church. Jude is specifically talking about things that creep into the church, and they're there beneath the surface, and they're going to sink you, right? So, I've been thinking about this. That uh, is it possible that Anthony is is creep is becoming this creeper <laughs> into the church, right? Like because I I I like to think that I'm trying very hard to be honest before God and before others, that type of thing. But, I mean, if Jude's warning about it, it's something I have to take seriously. I don't want to become that creepy guy creeping into the church and bringing things in where I become that hidden reef in some fashion that when other people brush up against me, I I damage them, right? So I've just been thinking for myself about what I think this looks like in discerning the body of Christ and ways I can do it. Uh, So just very briefly, I think an obvious example is money. I mean, it's really the examples from the early church had to do with those who had versus those who had not, and how those who had are looking out for those around them. And I've mentioned this before, and I continue to just be amazed by this, just how generous this congregation has been when we have asked, can you share your money? Whether it's making sure we pay our bills or whether it's different organizations or people. Um, in my mind, as I read this, I think that's love feast territory. I think that we're not all sitting down at a table with food in front of us, which is a good idea in and of itself, but we're in this spiritual feast, and we're all pulling a chair up to the table, and it just, uh, it just feels like kingdom gold when people pull up to the table, and they go, I have this. Does someone else need this? And uh, our deacons go, yeah, somebody else does need that. Awesome. I think that's what was captured in that first century idea of feasting. And I know Sheila and I have been talking about this more and more in the last couple months. What does it look like uh, to, to be able to look at what God has given us and recognize we are pulling up to a table, and at that table is a whole lot of people. And what does it look like to discern the body around the table and take what God has blessed us with and bless others with it, not for our glory, but for his. Um, just, just last night, we had some friends at our house, and we were talking with them about a need that we were aware of. And before they left, they cut us this amazing check to pass on. And I, I, I sent them a message this morning, and I just said, oh, that's, that is kingdom gold. That's discerning the body in a very practical sense. It made me so happy. I'm still smiling about it this morning. And I thought of my time, um, especially in a COVID world, which has impacted people differently. Some of you have gotten busier. Um, Some of us haven't. All right, so if I have a luxury of time, if I have a wealth of time, what does it look like for me to discern the body and ask the question, uh, how do I give to my abundance for someone who is in need of time? I got numerous messages from people in this congregation in the last four months. Is there something we can do? How could we help? We have the room to do it. That's, that's feasting territory. I was thinking of my talents, my gifts, my skills. Um, if I'm good at doing something, do I only use it to benefit myself or my household? And Now listen, my household is something that God has given as part of a thing that I steward, so I have to use some of it to steward that well, right? But I'm talking about when I recognize that there's ways in which I can use this talent, gift, and skill for the church. My comment about Corbin this morning is a great example. Corbin gives from the wealth of his talents and his skills. Uh, And it's feast territory. And can I just say this? If you think you don't have anything to bring, or you just think all I have is this, and I'm not sure it's worth this much, there are no dishonorable parts of the kingdom of God. Bring that. We will help you figure out how we use this in the kingdom of God. Unless it's a sin that you're bringing an offering, <laughs> right? Unless it's a sin, there's, there's no dishonorable parts. Bring it. We will let you see how to use this for our good and for God's glory. So that, that's the kind of thing I'm wrestling with in this passage. Um, my words, um, my face-to-face interaction, my presence in the virtual world—am uh, I sharing a love feast? Am I filling the space around me with truth and grace? Is my verbal fountain yielding fresh water, or is it yielding bitter water? Um, what is it? What? What am I bringing to the feast? Right. I just want to discern myself and in the body of Christ, and I want to discern the body of Christ. I want it to be the case that when I pull my chair up, what people are experiencing in me, what people are experiencing is Christ in me. That when I, when I am there, do people see the love of Christ that flowed into me passed on out from me and to you? Do you experience the generosity that Christ showed to me flowing out from me and to you? You experience the grace God showed to me flowing out of me and to you. And this is where I want to end this morning. If Jude's warning and Paul's warning is that one path leads to sickness and to death and to shipwrecking the faith of others, well, then what we learn from this is that there is another path. And that other path leads to health and to life and to building up others. So, once again, within the warning, there's hope. Envision a church community. Whereas all of us pull up our chairs to the feast, and I don't just mean potluck Sunday, which will one day again happen. I don't just mean potluck Sunday. I mean in a in a relational and spiritual sense, if we envision ourselves time after time pulling a chair up to the table, and this is where love feast happens. All right, uh, this is how the church gained favor in in Acts. Right, that is a compelling vision of kingdom life where God's transformed people pull up a chair and they're not perfect people but they are determined to feast well and what that means is bringing what God has given and looking around and discerning who else has pulled up a chair and asking ourselves the question what can we bring for their good and for God's glory I think that's a glimpse of heaven it's an expression of Christ and it's a vision that points us toward the goodness and the glory of God in whose likeness we are constantly being made. Lord, I am just so grateful you're such a good God, and I'm grateful that you move in and dwell us and change us, that in the salvation that you offer and then the sanctification that follows, we become a new people, and you are creating this uh, this this body that is intended to be this oasis in the midst of a a broken and hard world where we can experience and we can invite others to experience your goodness, your glory, just as your vision for life is embodied and lived out. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We require your Holy Spirit and the guidance of your word We can't do this perfectly, so we require that your grace and forgiveness for us is something that is lavish in our meetings together. But Lord, I just, I pray that we, your church, become this place of feasting. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.